Hey there, I'm Tiffy Rubinet, General Manager at Wealthy. If you've been listening to our podcast, hopefully enjoying it, and you are considering investing in real estate, then reach out to the team. We can offer you a free strategy session and we would love to help you out. Our contact details are in the description below. Enjoy today's show. Hey guys, today we have a really good show with Stephen Barlow from ClearState. He is the general manager over there. They are a greenfield developer. Effectively, that means that they go out, they buy big swaths of land and they cut it up into little bits and sell it to the general public. Now, we thought it'd be very interesting to talk to him and it was because he has a very good idea on what makes a good house and land subdivision also has a very good understanding of what's happening in the current market. He's been doing this for more than 20 years and has some very interesting insights into the current supply levels. He believes that there is a huge undersupply of stock. Listen to this podcast, lots of good tips. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Uh, Dominic Neshi here today with Steve Barlow from Clear State. Thank you for joining the show today. Thanks for having me. So, um, Steve... We want to talk all about uh, ClearState. I want to talk to you as a professional about what you do. I understand we just chatted before the show, you're also a bit of a developer um, and you've been doing uh, developments for many, many, many years. But before we dive into all of that, can we learn a little bit about ClearState, what you're doing over there, what the business is and how it all kind of comes together? Sure. So business started in 2011. Uh, so we're a land subdivider. Uh, we basically uh, operate mainly in Sydney. Uh, doing projects of anywhere from 50 to 200 lots, uh, where I suppose our sweet spot is the fragmented land that is the greenfield market of Western Sydney. That's where we've cut our teeth. The majority of our projects have been in the northwest, with a couple in the southwest, and we've had uh, one experience uh, in Melbourne, which is positive, and we're keen to go back there and uh, and do a little bit more work down there. But primarily, uh, we we think about ourselves as a, a small developer who who does a good job with our, for our customers and gets them into new homes. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you hear a developer say they're small and they're, they're cutting up fifty to two hundred lots at a time. I mean, relatively, yes, when we're talking about Stockland and and of where course. you've come from. Yes, um, but to all the people that are listening out there, so essentially, you go out buy effectively farms or big land subholdings or, or bring a bunch of owners together and then you go and get the applications necessary to then cut it up into much smaller bits yes and then you sell it to the general public or you then get builders involved to then sell it and however it gets sold it's, it starts with you that's right that's right so we we're an end-to-end developer in that we we acquire in the first instance we go and get the necessary approvals as you say we sell the project typically to mum and dads uh, first and second home buyers and from there we deliver the construction and create the title that mum and dad ultimately build their dream home on we don't build the house we do partner with builders to demonstrate what our customers can do on the land but we don't build houses we just do the land and can I ask a little bit about where you've come from how you landed in clear state and and you know why are you in this role and what we're doing so yeah I've been in the development the greenfield development game for oh, 16 or 17 years now I lose track of time um, so I've had roles at Mervac uh, and previous uh, and sorry just um, after that at Stockland for almost 10 years so I've come from the master plan big master plan community space I, I got an opportunity to run clear state four years ago and I'd always had in the back of my mind that doing private development uh, in a smaller company was something of interest the opportunity fell into my lap um, I suppose it worked out that I took the job and it's uh, four years later and we've kicked a, a hell of a lot of goals over that time 
And can I ask you about one that's a, that's an impressive track record because you've worked with two of the biggest developers nationally and, and globally in some respects. Um, can I ask the difference between working or buying from, let's just say, a 50 or 200 lot subdivision or a master plan community? And what are the differences between the two and how does our, how do our investors out there think about the two and, and, and why they'd go for one versus the other? Uh there's a lot of similarities. You've still, typically you'll have a vendor or two that you're trying to negotiate with. The quantum of dollars is just significantly different. But nonetheless, in most instances, the vendors are looking to maximise the value that they get out of the transaction. So that's their motivator. Typically, the vendors have only got one asset, which is the land that they're selling, and they want to make sure they maximise value out of that. And we're obviously trying to get the, the best commercial deal that we can get. Um, so really, there's not a lot of difference other than the check size. And then for the end purchaser, if I'm actively looking to buy in a 50 or 200 versus, and, and that's just that's a, sorry, a smaller subdivision yes. relatively, versus a master plan, larger Mervac, Stockland, Lenly style development, yep. what, what are the merits between going for the larger versus a smaller or how would you sort of think about the differences between the two? As an investor? Uh, Generalising, the, the bigger projects have lots of amenity on their master plan. Typically, it'll be proposed. So it's amenity like schools and shopping centres, et cetera, that will come, but it's typically proposed. So you're having to wait for that amenity. The smaller projects are within the same, so call it local catchment, but are typically closer to the existing amenity. Because the projects we deliver are smaller in size, um, they tend to be closer to existing infrastructure, whereas the larger land holdings that the bigger master plan communities are placed on are further out. So you've still got the same proximity to that uh, amenity, but you're not quite as close. So I think that's the key difference. Ultimately, you're buying a very similar product. You're still getting benefit from the infrastructure that the government's going to deliver on a broad scale, um, but yeah, you're typically closer to the existing amenity. So to give you an example, we've got a project or a couple of projects in Rouse Hill uh, there's a, a new train line there, or relatively new train line. We're within a kilometre and a half, whereas our biggest competitor in that space is more like four or five kilometres away. So you've you've got the benefit of distance. And if I'm thinking about this with my investor hat, and I'm thinking about the differences between the two, do you think there's any perceived risks with working with a smaller? group or, or going in with to a smaller subdivision versus a master plan community and name brand and are there any specific um, things that an investor should be thinking about before buying in either a smaller or larger name brand or not definitely obviously you've got the brand with the bigger guys they've got the balance sheets and the track record to support what they're doing so you, you've got some comfort there at the smaller end um, we Depending on market conditions, we find that there's a lot of non-professional developers developing. So what I mean by that is the doctors and the dentists who have got some money look at property development as a way to, to maximise value and try and become a developer. I wish it was that simple. It's not. Mm. Uh, and often they can get themselves into trouble not knowing what they're doing. Uh, so I suppose the advice at the smaller end of the, of the project scale is to really uh, do some research on who the developer is and what track record they've got. Uh, before you go and commit. And would you say there are any obvious signs if you're seeing come out of the ground? I mean, let me just preface this. When I go to different um, developments and I'm, I'm going and having a look at the different greenfield sites, you, 
there's almost a visceral differences differences. But what I mean, you can feel it. You can see yep. the streetscape. You can see if they've got you know power lines above ground, underground, the way they curve their guttering. You know, is someone taking control of the landscaping? All that kind of stuff. Is there anything that to the untrained eye that you'd say, look, keep it, keep an eye for these are the the top two, three, four things that you should look at when you're looking at greenfield sites? It's probably before the construction even starts. So typically, in the way development works generally, developers are, are funding via banks. You've got to get a level of pre-sales before you'll get that funding commitment. So I think the first sign is if you're asking questions that don't get answered appropriately, so you're asking for information on what the lot size is, for example, uh, what building covenants they might have, um, and that sort of thing. If you're not getting an answer that satisfies you and it's not professionally presented, that would be my first red flag. I would I would look and say, well, if they can't provide the information for me up front, what's the back-end process going to look like and, and are they even going to get there? So that would be my first um, pass, I suppose, to make sure that you're, you're comfortable with the level of professionalism and information that you're providing because at the end of the day, typically you're buying off the plan and you need to be really clear on what you're buying so that you can make sure you, your contract o- the contract obligations of the developer are followed through with. So those, that, that process and professionalism is a critical part in your mind because it's telling you what their back office is like. Absolutely. So we, as part of our market sounding and just staying on top of what's happening in the market with competitors, we do a lot of mystery shopping and we often find with the, I'll call them less professional developers, the level of information that you get when you request it is significantly below what we would provide or what you would get if you were going to buy off one of the larger players. So... Yeah, that's certainly the first thing to look out for. If if they can't articulate what you're buying, when it's going, what what the program is, what the process is, then uh, I'd suggest you do a bit more research on them. And and you mentioned something important, and that was building covenants. What do you mean by that? So if I'm buying a block of land, what are building covenants, and why are they important to me? Like, why do I want covenants on my land that I'm buying? That sounds scary. Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, and probably one that you'll if you ask a few experts you probably get a diverse range of answers my personal opinion is that building covenants were a wonderful thing 10 or 15 years ago when the quality of contract home construction and and facades weren't what they are today the the building component of the greenfield space has significantly improved their their output and what they do which in my mind makes building um, controls redundant what what it can do on the negative side is it's to say if a developer puts in the covenants and says every house is going to have these controls in place, as soon as someone doesn't comply with those controls, noting the developer has no legal obliga- uh, sorry, no legal right to challenge whether someone's complied with them or not, it causes issues with the customers who have complied. So they've gone through a process of potentially spending a little bit more money on compliance, they've gone through the process of compliance, and then their neighbours build a pink house. The developer has no legal um, ability to challenge that pink house and all of a sudden it devalues everybody else's house. That's so interesting. I, I think they're ne- personally, I think they're a negative. It's interesting because I understand exactly what you're saying. At the start, it's good because you want there to be a general level. Yes. You, know, you don't want people putting engine blocks on, on cinder blocks at the front of your house. Exactly. You don't want um, you know trailers parked at the front. You don't want you know, a, a shoddy or poor quality build that's going to devalue the street. Yes. 
However, on the other side, you don't want to be too uh, restrictive where everything looks the same and it looks like a big cookie cutter Absolutely. area. And then the other side, which I hadn't thought about, which is if some people comply, but then someone doesn't, it just ruins it all. Yes. I suppose the other thing that always goes through my mind, in the large majority of the customers that we transact with, it's the, the biggest investment they'll make. And for a developer then to say, well, here's what you can and can't do, doesn't really sit well with me. Um, and like I say, the quality of build has improved, the planning controls have, have improved things as well, and the outcomes we're getting are really, really good. The, the builders are wanting to differentiate themselves uh, with really good design, and that's just pulled everything up. And I think, for me, the, the covenant controls are a thing of the past. Okay, so in your mind you'd prefer to have freer rules and allow people to build the stuff they want to because generally speaking, people are building good stuff. Absolutely. Makes sense. Absolutely. One question that comes up all the time for us is, uh, it's interesting for us because we are across Australia, we're in Brisbane, uh, you know, Melbourne, we're in Sydney, and one thing that pops up all the time when we're talking about land and subdivisions is oversupply. I can see you smiling um, and people have an idea that in Sydney there's an oversupply of land and that if they buy that block of land, you know, they're just going to keep on developing and it's going to devalue their block of land. What do you think about this? Is there an oversupply in Sydney, let's say, yeah, of I can land? O- I can only sp- speak specific to Sydney uh, at this point. But if you asked me what my biggest concern for the greenfield industry is, I would say lack of supply. Uh, it, it's concerning for someone who runs a development business who needs a pipeline to continue that business that the government hasn't rezoned a greenfield release area in, off the top of my head, six or seven years. So the government are, uh, I suppose, behind, in my opinion, as to where they should be with levels of supply. And as we've sold stock over the last six or seven years and it hasn't been replaced... We're just getting to a point where there's chronic undersupply. To give you an example, there's a release area in southwestern Sydney called Austral. Off the top of my head, five or six thousand lots was rezoned in 2014. 2,600 or thereabouts lots have been created out of that release area. There's a cap on the amount of supply because of sewer servicing constraints of 1,700 lots until 2025. So the government thinks that there's all this land that's been rezoned but it's either been developed or there's a constraint on what's left. So in my view, we've got a severe undersupply problem uh, and I see that when we're trying to buy because there's a reducing number of sites that are available or, or could be available. There's more competition for those sites and I think part of the significant price growth we've seen in the last six months is not only a consequence of low interest rates and government stimulus, but it's also lack of supply. If you if you do a realestate.com search on any of the greenfield markets, Box Hill, Austral, Marsden Park, there is very little listings. And the reason for that is developers have sold out of their stock. So that's very interesting to hear. We've heard it, we understand it and we know it and there's a reason why we're in this space, but to the average person or someone that's new in this space, they look out and they say there's 
green fields everywhere. Can't isn't there just unlimited supply? Or feels like it's unlimited? Can't they just keep on developing until the cows come home? Or why is there such why is there such an undersupply? How is it happening? And what's this whole redevelopment? And, and yeah. I think I think a lot the large majority of it is the fact that there hasn't been continuing rezoning uh, rezonings come through government. Let's compare Sydney and Melbourne. Geographically, in Melbourne, you could go all the way to Adelaide. They could develop all the way to Adelaide, really. Whereas Sydney, we've got constraints with the Blue Mountains, we've got constraints with the harbour, etc. So there's only a limited, limited amount of greenfield land that can be developed over time. Mm. Uh, and with, with the population growth that we've had that hopefully continues over, over the next decade or so, uh, that oversupply is only going to be, sorry, the undersupply is only going to become a problem. You're, uh, you're absolutely right. The geographically constrained in Sydney, you've got national parks, you've got the Blue Mountains, you've got the harbour and then you're locked. That's it. Uh, Brisbane, you can go north or south. Yes. For a very long time. And Melbourne, you can just sprawl. As you said, you can go to Adelaide, you can just go all the way out. That's right. So it, it is interesting and it's it's one of the reasons why people are experiencing such um, phenomenal price growth in these areas. Um, may I ask you just a little bit off topic, what are your thoughts on the the, the, the second second airport, Austral, Leppington, Badgerys Creek, that whole area? What are your thoughts on that area and how do you kind of frame that in your mind? Well, there's another example of where, from a residential perspective, land is taken up by other uses. So, yes, there's a lot of greenfield land that hasn't, or, or farmland, let's call it, that hasn't been developed, but not all of it's going to be residential. Mm. So you've got the whole second airport precinct, which has some residential uh, proposed, but the large majority of it's going to be industrial and heavy uses. So there's, there's land that won't be uh, servicing... The, the level of residential demand. Uh, I really like it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it's obviously been in the works for 25-odd years. Uh, what they've done so far is really, really positive in my opinion uh, and it'll create a little bit of a or a big sub-economy down there which will only benefit the southwest. And do you think it's too late to be investing in those areas as, a, as an investor to be buying you know, a house and land pack or you think the prices have peaked? No. No, not at all. I th the southwest probably has further to run. I think what, what I've certainly seen in my experience, if I go back, let's say, 10 years, the price comparison, the northwest versus the southwest, was 100 to 150,000. That's blown out in recent times. I think that will, will contract, uh, p particularly on the back of the airport and what um, I suppose that's going to do economically for that region. Yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way because the northwest is phenomenal prices yeah. box hill marsden park yeah. that whole area is it's, it's huge own catchment area median house prices what's crazy to see me high house prices, not median but just house prices hitting one and a half you know and you're like what it's it is insane is the word i would use we to, to put some numbers around it we, we had a project that we put to market in august last year a 300 square meter lot which is sort of our our smallest product uh, we were selling for 460 or thereabouts. Project launched not long ago around the corner. They're selling the equivalent lot for 600 to 620. So within the space of six months or thereabouts, you've seen that level of price growth. And, and $200,000 price growth mm. in the land. Mm. In the land, yeah. 
and so Bill that, Co- and that, that's part of my logic on on the supply. If if there was all of these projects that could bring stock to market, I don't think the market would sustain that level of price growth. There are other factors, as I say, interest rates and government stimulus, which have certainly helped. But the the fear of missing out that's been in the market in recent times is, I won't use the word largely, but a considerable proportion of that uh, market growth has a has been as a consequence of I can't find a, a, a bit of land that I want to buy, so whenever I do get the opportunity to buy something, I'm just going to grab it. I don't really mind what price it is, I just need to get into the market and I just need to buy. I don't have choice. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you can certainly see and feel it. And, and it's interesting for you to say then that the southwest you believe, or south-southwest, has um, a bit of catching up to do mm. because land values are not $600,000 for a 300 square metre block currently. No, 450, depending like Austral, for example, is about 450. So it's got a way to go. Uh, and I think as the, the airport precinct matures uh, over the next five years or so, the the southwest will catch up there's no doubt the the level of job creation alone will will have a bearing on that and do you have an opinion on um on on the subdivisions and things uh, up north towards the central coast and hunter valley and would love to hear your thoughts on those areas and and land supply and and what you think the opportunities are in that market or if maybe you don't think there are opportunities it's better to stick on this side or we typically stick to Sydney Metropolitan, which includes the Central Coast. The supply constraints up there are pretty similar to, to Sydney itself. Um, what I think we have seen as a consequence of COVID is the working from home situation has made those markets more appealing, as has the Sydney price growth. So people wanting to either cash out or, or not able to afford Sydney can go further north but still be able to, to get, um, I suppose, a job in Sydney. So I think that's a trend that will continue. So those uh, more regional markets, if I can use that term, will become more appealing. It's interesting you say that because one of the, the things that we would discuss uh, five, ten years ago when looking at those more regional markets, Central Coast, Hunter Valley, all those areas where you can get some really cheap blocks was – um, the employment opportunities. There wasn't much, mm. you know, in some areas you're, you're travelling an hour into Newcastle, which is a satellite city. city. It's the seventh or eighth largest city, but it's, it's still not Sydney. Mm. Um, and then driving into Sydney, it's two two hours or an hour and a half, two hours roughly. So it was, it was far, but the fact that you now can work on your laptop and be in your living room and spend six or 700000 have a nice house and land pack on a good-sized block... Yes. I mean, you could go out. Very appealing in that sense. I think what it will do within the markets that are within, call it a two-hour drive of Sydney, and I include Wollongong in in that, it it will probably take some of the volatility out of them, which I think will appeal to more developers. Um, if, If there's a more stable employment opportunity as a consequence of working from home, then some of those markets will um, potentially be in the eyes of developers less volatile and i'd like to go back to one of your earlier statements where you were discussing a 4a 4a in uh, melbourne can you tell us a little bit about that and and where you're looking what what areas in melbourne and and what you plan to do there going forward if 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 any yeah where i would call us opportunistic in melbourne at this stage uh where we're looking on a deal by deal basis where we're starting to build a bit of a network down there who are bringing us some good sites because we don't have, I suppose, the intimate knowledge 
that we have of Sydney, we're just treading carefully on those opportunities. So it's really at this point a bit of a case by case where we see a good opportunity, we'll we'll put the necessary resources into it and and go in that direction, try and acquire the site. Uh, so it's a little bit opportunistic at this point. And, and what area did you develop? Is it still available? What what was that market and how how was the retent? What was it like developing there and the people's sort of reception to it? And yeah. Uh, Again, we only had a limited experience. We had a joint venture part- partner on that project who did a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, what I think we found in comparison to Sydney was that the planning controls or the, the planning arrangement, securing approvals and the like, seemed to be easier. Uh, we were in a, a semi-regional market in Gisborne. So I think that was probably our key takeaway, that, that the planning side of things was just more orderly and easier to navigate. Interesting. Okay, well, we... we we watch to see what comes in the future of your Melbourne markets and also the stock that you bring into Sydney. Um, two more questions for you. One, the first question is, how do you pick your sites? I mean, obviously, as you're saying, some of it's opportunistic and kind of in this market, get what you can get. Mm, absolutely. Um, but is, is there any other forethought that goes into what makes an, an ideal site? Like what are the, what's at the top of your mind when you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a good... Um, subdivision for us and what's the exit strategy and what's that what are you thinking well I, th- I suppose our first filter is is their demand is their customer demand so can we sell the end product that's that's our first filter our second filter is uh, planning led so in in most instances in Sydney that'll confine us to the to the growth corridors of the north and the southwest where the the government has done a really good job of um, streamlining the planning process as best they can and that makes the the risk of planning uh, significantly reduced on our part. We don't take zoning risk, for example. Um, so that's the second filter. And then the third is location, so proximity to existing amenity or proposed amenity. Again, the the customers value that and therefore that's what we look for. So yeah, really we're wanting to be a uh, path of least resistance when it comes to demand and when it comes to approvals uh, and therefore... Uh, we're taking some of the risk elements out. Okay, that's awesome. And then I guess the the, the last question, and, and I want to sort of round it all out because one, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's been yeah. an absolute pleasure learning from you and, and how you think about developments thank and you. subdivisions. Um, and what what I, I take from this is you've been doing this for quite a long time. You, you are a developer inside the business, outside of it, and you've got a wealth of knowledge in the the residential property space or commercial residential space. Um, have you got one hot tip for people that are looking to build a wealthy life? What would you, what, what's the key takeaway? What's something that you've learned in your travels or your journey for someone that's trying to, you know, build a wealthy life, whatever that definition is for you? In a property sense, I would say find opportunities where you can add value. So whether that be buying a greenfield lot off a developer like Clearstate and building a house on top of it, you're adding value. Uh, where you can find opportunities like that, th- I think you ultimately end up in a better position. Um, so that that would be my advice. Don't don't just buy something for the sake of buying something. Buy something that whether it's immediately or in the future, you can add value to. Um, another example of that might be uh, you can add a granny flat to the back of the house that you buy, and therefore you're adding value. It might be a plan that you put in place and you don't enact it for 10 years but you've got a plan to add value and ultimately create wealth as a consequence 
I like it. it. It makes sense coming from you. You're entrepreneurial. You're, you're a developer. You like to add value where you're going, cutting off sites and doing different things. It makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, buying something where you can add value is great because then you've got that margin. You can use that to then go buy something else again. Um, I, I want to say that adding to that, adding value, it's it's um, it's never straightforward, is it? No. So also be prepared to learn some hard lessons in that journey. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I suppose from personal experience, I mentioned off off air, we were we're going through a process of uh, complying code duplex project, uh, which has been fantastic learning experience for me. Something that uh, I'm not, I don't have a lot of experience in, so it's been fantastic to work through uh, a complying code approval. Um, over the last couple of months. So yeah, learned a hell of a lot. So far it hasn't cost me anything, which is good. Um, so yeah, just experience what you can and, and where you can add value. Ultimately, it'll put you in a, a good position. Thank you very much for today. It's been an awesome show. Um, for all of you that want to know more from Steve and the team, feel free to send us all your questions. And just a little reminder that we have launched launch the um, the wealth, Wealthy Masterclass. So there's a whole heap of lessons in there in Academy so you can learn about properties, how you can buy them, the ways you should be thinking about it and um, different ways you can add value too. So again, Steve, thank you very much and we'll um, hope to hear more from you soon. Great, thanks very much.